0: Okay, open Bibles to John chapter 1, turn on your electronic devices, we're back at John, I know it's been a couple of weeks, um, and so we're going to re-engage John, we're going to re-engage the gospel, so in doing so, I, I want to, here's what we're going to do, I want to immediately get personal, uh, I want this to be personal, so here it is, we want John to connect to your life, where are you falling apart in your life? Where is your life falling apart? Can the gospel of John speak you back to life again? Where are you um, anxious? Where are you out of control? Is it at home? Is it with a child? Is it when you now look at your bank account after Christmas? Is it at work? Is it at school? Is it on the ball field? or, Or some trauma leveled you? Where are you anxious? Where are you feeling out of control? Can the Gospel of John speak you back to life again? Where are you confused? The Bible calls it it's kind of nice because it sounds nice. It's more uh, cleaned up. Uh, where are you lacking an understanding? <laughs> Where are you confused? Where are you blind? Where do you feel like you don't know what's going on? You don't know what's been going on. You don't even know what to do. You're absolutely clueless. You're stumbling around in the dark. You're exasperated. You're exhausted. And you are clueless. Confused. Can the Gospel of John speak you back to life again? And then what's missing in your life? And and I mean it this way. It's missing to an extent that it's hurting you and it's hurting others around you. Like, for instance, love might be missing in your life. And I'm talking about the self-giving kind without any in return, a self-giving kind and a self-sacrificial kind without reciprocation. Maybe that's missing in your life and in your relationships, and it's hurting you and it's hurting those around you. Or or maybe it's it's joy. You know what joy is? Joy is this solid sense of significance, this solid sense of security, this solid sense of satisfaction. Or maybe what's missing in your life is humility or a self-forgetfulness. You know what that is? That's that freedom that freedom from thinking about what you think about yourself. It's that freedom from thinking about what you think other people think about you. It's that incredible freedom from thinking about what you think the law of thinness thinks about you, or the law of productivity, or the law of being impressive thinks about you. Where are these things missing in your life? What's missing in your life? Can can John, the gospel of John, speak you back to life again? Where does your soul, reflexively, voluntarily, cry out, How long, O Lord? How long? And the Gospel of John speak you back to life again. If the Gospel of John can't speak us back to life again, then it's a book of fables. Then it's legends and myths. It's like going to Bankston's and picking up a comic book and seeing the comic book tales and characters. If the the Gospel of John can't speak us back to life again, then it's just a book of morals to fix your life, to make you a good person, whatever that means. If the Gospel of John can't speak us back to life again, then it's just a book about spiritual advice, possibly spiritual techniques to help you connect with God, or if it's not with God, to help you connect with the the force of the universe, and it's not with the universe to to connect with the power and the force within you and have some sense of self-discovery. The Gospel of John doesn't speak us back to life again. I, quite frankly, would like to leave and go watch some football. Now, what's about to be said next, I do not take responsibility for Um, Colin Coates, our youth director, sent me these, sent me these tweets by email, so this is his fault. So if I get a little salty, it's his fault, okay? Uh, Beth Moore is an incredibly popular Bible teacher, everybody know who she is? Most of us that are in church know who she is. Uh, She has the founder of perhaps the number one way to read the Bible in the world, the number one way to study the Bible in the world, she has produced. She tweeted on January 2nd, Spending time with God and spending time with the Bible are not the same thing. We can study our Bibles until the second coming and leave God completely out of it. Can we? Can we read our Bible and study our Bible and leave God completely out of it? Um. Do we activate God? Do we activate God in our Bible reading? Do we make God real and present and active in our Bible reading? Or let's just say our lives or our relationships or our parenting or at school or at work or on the ball field or in Waco, or in ministry, or even now in church. Do we activate God? Do we activate Him? Do we activate Him by our devotion, by our our commitment and our our level of passion and love, and that activates Him in your life and in your relationships and in the world? Do we activate Him by our discipleship, our, our yieldedness, our surrendering? By our spiritual maturity or by following him hard, you activate him in your life and in the world and other people's lives. I'm just asking the question. Do you? Do we? Again, you can blame this all on Collins. is all his doing. On January 9th, she also addressed people who handle the Bible. So she sent out another tweet. This is all public, so I feel like I can say the name. And if I shouldn't, I'm sorry. Um, she's addressing people that handle the Bible. She's addressing people that are Bible expositors. Um, she said this, fellow Bible teachers and communicators, and then in parentheses, and preachers. Just want, I'm still trying to figure out that parenthesis, right? So in pastors is in parentheses. And so uh, I'm in third place. I'm in third place on a list of Bible expositors. There's Bible teachers, there's Bible communicators, and then there's pastors. I'm just saying. I told you I'm a little salty this morning. I've been gone for two weeks. This happens when I'm gone. Here's what she says. Fellow Bible teachers and communicators and pastors, what kills us is trading off our personal time with God for preparation time. It may be a slow death, but it's a sure death. So my question is this. Is preparation time in the Bible time not spent with God? That's just my question. Do we activate God in the Bible? Do we make Him more real? Do we make Him present? Do we make Him active in our lives? That's the big idea of our text this morning. The answer is in the text. So as we stand to read it, see if you can answer it. Please stand for the hearing of God's word.
1: Today's reading is from the Gospel of John. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 19 through 34, the testimony of John the Baptist. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us what do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not unworthy, I'm, I am not worthy to, to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, "Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world." This is he of whom I said, "After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was he was before me." I myself did not know him. But for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The word of the Lord.
0: Please be seated, y'all. All All right, Lord, we ask that you would shine on the page. Would you send forth your spirit with word, with power? May you open our eyes and work in our hearts. Clarity, realness, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so here's the question. Do we activate God in the Bible? Do we activate God in our lives? Do we make God real? Do we make him present? Do we make him active um, in our relationships? In life situations, at work, on the ball field, at school, in our marriage, in our parenting, in life, do we? Well, the religious leaders in Jesus' day thought so. I want you to look at verse 19. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent the priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? In verse 24, John the Apostle, not to be confused with John the Baptist, tells us that the Jews in verse 19 are the Pharisees in verse 24, which means these are the religious leaders. So, why? Why do the religious leaders, why are they so desperate? Why do they need to know who John is? Do you see the need? Do you see and feel the urgency? Do you, you can kinda cut the anxiety on the page. They are desperate to know who he is. Here's what's happening in John one. John the Baptist is famous. He's a sensation. He's a phenom. He's bigger than Justin Bieber. He is on every morning talk show. He is plastered on every tabloid in the grocery aisle. He has millions and millions of YouTube uh, visits and viewership. And as far as Twitter, I mean, he's setting all kinds of records. He is a phenomenon in Israel at this time. And so the religious leaders are very nervous about his popularity. That's why they want to know who he is. But why are they so nervous? Why are they so anxious about who he is. Well, here's why they are. Because they believe they activate God in their lives. They believe that by their devotion and by their discipleship, they activate God in Israel as religious leaders and God into the world. And they're trying to figure out who this other activator is. And so inside, the way that they're thinking and the way that they're feeling, they, they feel this way and they think this way. It's not that they choose to think this way and choose to feel this way, it's just the way they think. It's just the way they feel. It's just how they see life and process. They have thoughts and feelings like this. If we could just have a ticker tape go across their heart, my devotion, our devotion activates God. Our discipleship makes God real and present and active in Israel and the world. Devotion and discipleship is everything. It's what the law is all about. And we will help others be more devoted and be more discipled. So here's what they constantly do. They're constantly measuring themselves, constantly thinking about themselves in light of their devotion and their discipleship. Those are the thoughts that run through their head. Those are the feelings that run through their head. And then when they look at other people, the way they think about other people is in light of devotion and discipleship. And then the, the health of their psychological makeup is shaped and structured and produced around devotion to discipleship. So instance, there's sorrow or there's gladness dependent upon their measurement of devotion to discipleship. There's a sense of rest when it's high, unrest when it's not there's a sense of security when it's going well a sense of insecurity when it's not there's a sense of peace when it's being when the measurements are good and then there's chaos and there's chaos when the measurements are not and so their whole identity their whole sense of self is built on devotion and discipleship so if they walked up to john and they asked him who he is if someone walked up to them and said who are you they'd say I am devotion and discipleship. So what this means is that if they were ever to discover real failure in their devotion and their discipleship, it would undo them. It would be so traumatizing, completely traumatizing. And because it's so completely traumatizing, Here's what's happening. They must at all costs refuse to have a true self-understanding of themselves. They will do everything they can to avoid self-discovery. A real self-discovery. A true self-understanding. And so they must live lives that self-justify all the time. And they must live lives that blame others. They must live lives that feel superior to others. They must live lives that Deep down, they're constantly trying to inwardly manage a self-loathing and an unbearable anxiety and this deep pain of shame. They're constantly managing all the time. And this is how they live their life. And this is where it gets really, really crazy because the, what they're trying to do in their devotion and their discipleship is on a collision course with John the Baptist's call to Israel because he is called to bring about self-discovery. He is called to bring about a true self-understanding that sets you free to finally be you. And so here is this collision course. Look at verse 25. They ask him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? Now the prophet was someone like Moses that would lead a newer, better ultimate exodus. Are you him? If you're not them, do you feel their anxiety? Why do they have this anxiety? Because baptism for them, for the religious leaders, baptism for them is for the unchurched. Baptism for them is for the un-Israel. Baptism for them is is for the Gentiles coming in, being converted to God and and to the people of God. Baptism for them is for irreligious people to become devoted people and discipled by the law people. Baptism for them is for the bad people outside of Israel to finally, finally come inside where the good people are in Israel. Baptism for the religious people, the religious leaders, is for churched people. So John is doing the unthinkable. He's baptizing churched people. He's baptizing Israel. He's baptizing devoted and discipled people. He's bringing about a real self-understanding and a true self-discovery to the churched people. What is this self-discovery? What is he bringing about? What is his mission? What is he sent from God to do? What is this self-understanding that he's bringing? And here it is. No one, no one, is devoted enough. No one in Israel and no one outside of Israel is a good enough disciple. No one ever, 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 ever activates God. Not in the Bible, and not in life. John the Baptist summarizes everything, this whole message in verse 20. What he says in verse 20 ranks if there are the most significant, important, greatest words ever spoken on the planet by any human being. What he says in verse 20 is second on the list. What he's going to say in verse 29 is number one on the list. But what he says in verse 19 or in verse 20, these are the five greatest words that can set you free to be who you are. These five greatest words can release you to finally be yourself. These five greatest words, the religious leaders come up to him and they say to him, John, who are you? These religious leaders come up to him and say, John, the most fundamental layer of your identity is what? John, what is the solidness of a self? I am not the Christ, and he set free. Great women believe this in their bones. Great men believe this in their bones. Great teenagers believe this in their bones. Great children believe this in their bones. I am not the Christ. Remember what Jesus said about John? Jesus called him the greatest man who ever lived. And now we know why. I am not the Christ. The greatest words coming in second, ever spoken, on this planet. So here's the question of the text now. We We get to see this. We get to see, how did John get this deep into his bones? How did he... How did he get set free to finally be himself? How did he have this solid, fundamental layer of his identity actually becoming crystal clear in a way that he's finally free to be himself? He's finally energized and empowered to be himself. He's no longer trying to be a savior. He's no longer trying to activate God and activate life. And if, and if you don't think about that you're trying to be your own savior in terms of activating God, that's fine. But if we're not, there's other ways we try to activate things. We try to activate our own identity. We try to activate our own happiness. We try to activate a a sense of freedom. We try to activate our flourishing. We are constantly trying to activate. And John is saying, I'm no longer an activator. I'm not the Christ. And peace and freedom and finally himself happens. But how do you stop doing that, though? How do you stop thinking and feeling and living like you activate God in the Bible, you activate God in your relationships, you activate your own happiness? How do we do that? The answer in the text is stunning. The answer in the text will take your breath away. The answer in the text is, how do you stop thinking, feeling, living like you activate God? The answer in the text is, we don't stop it. We can't stop it. We can't take away sin, not in ourselves and certainly not in other people. I want you to look at this, verse 29, the next day. Day one was his first sermon, right? The second greatest words ever spoken, sermon number one, I am not the Christ. Now we're at day two because this is the next day. He saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, here it is, here's the second sermon, the greatest words ever spoken on the planet, behold, behold the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. When you when you see Jesus coming to you as the lamb of God, you feel deep deep in your bones I don't activate God. He does. And you are finally you. Watch how this works. I want you to look at verse 19. Do you see the temple authorities? These are the priests and the Levites. These are temple authorities. These are the folks that, that do the service and the work in the temple. Now, just one day after seeing them, so John sees them in verse 19. Now, just one day after seeing them in verse 29, one day, Jesus points, I mean, John points to Jesus as the ultimate lamb of God. This is breathtaking because here's what's happening. Two times a day in the temple, there's a lamb sacrificed for sin, and it's done continually. It's done exhaustively. It's done two times a day, every day, 365 days a year Constantly done all the time. And who are the ones that are performing that task? The temple authorities, the priests, and the Levites. And so, what's happening is every day they are trying to activate God. Every day they're trying to activate God's forgiveness. Every day they're trying to activate this comprehensive peace with God from their sin and their guilt, and their shame. Every day they're trying to activate God to break this slavery and dominance and this dark power of the sin. Every day they're trying to activate God, and they can't. Because there's always another day. And if it's not at 10 o'clock, it will happen again at 4 o'clock rain or shine a Friday night victory or loss SATs, exams at school and then and then God's own son shows up his own lamb the ultimate sacrifice and removes sin removes the accusing, condemning, rejecting power of sin. Removes it. Removes the death-dealing, killing, cutting, disintegrating, decreating power of sin. Removes it. Removes the imprisoning, dominating, enslaving power of sin. Sin is taken away by one sacrifice, of the Lamb of God. When you see Jesus coming toward you as the Lamb of God, you believe deep in your bones, I am not the Christ. He is. I don't activate God. He does. This is real self-discovery. This is a genuine, true self-understanding. I haven't, back, I haven't been back for some 30 years. Where, you ask? Good question. Simsbury, Connecticut. I hadn't been back for 30 years. That's where Pete and I, my brother, went to high school. Uh, we were... Uh, There, because last Saturday night, my brother Pete was inducted into our high school hall of fame. This is the second year that they've done this. For football, for wrestling, for lacrosse. And for the record, I made him everything he is and was. If I didn't beat him every day, he never would have been the athlete that he was. (laughs) At least that's what I tell him, right? There were hundreds and hundreds of people there. Our principal was there. Walt Zelaski, this Polish man with this big hair who was the voice of all the sporting events. And you saw him in the hall, he'd give you a big hug. His personality was as big as his smile. Coaches, the athletic director, principal, teachers, and now highly successful friends from Pete and some of mine that are now in their early 50s after life has gotten a hold of them. Because you remember when you are in high school, right? You're invincible. And you have nothing but hopes and dreams that you will conquer the world. You will be the most successful person on the planet. You will marry. You will have children. And the world will be at your feet. And then you get married and you have children. And you get to this place and life gets a hold of you. The person that was doing the, um, just to give you an idea, the person that was moderating this was one of Pete's classmates. He works for ESPN, and he's gotten an Emmy for 30 for 30. Have you heard of that? Now, remember, New England New England is in its fifth generation now. When we were there, it was three generations. It's now in its fifth generation of people that don't go to church. It's kind of weird coming from a churched area, right, where we can go down the block and see church after church after church after church. You've got 26,000 people surrounded by a mountain and a river, and... They don't go to church. One generation to another generation to another generation to another generation, and now we're in that generation. So, what Pete did was breathtaking. He got five minutes. Of course, he's a preacher, so he went over. (laughs) But he talked about the pressure to perform in life. And he talked about the fragility of basing an identity on your performance. And then he moved to the performance of another. and silence was silent and what we saw happen is that a, that a plate of real food was set before people that didn't know they were starving until they saw the real food and Pete became a rock star football coach came up to me and he was crying. Football coach, does that happen? When you see Jesus coming toward you as the Lamb of God, I am not the Christ. He is. I don't activate God. He does. And you finally become you.